This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be as something to do, as one. and everything can change. Welcome to 3CR. This is Beyond Zero Emissions. Uh, and today we will be doing a show on resistance. That is resisting our fate. We will be looking back at 2019, and I think it will be the moment the tide began to turn. From this year on, we will be no longer tackling widespread apathy within the population, but we will be directly taking on the system, the politicians, and the corporations that are pushing us towards oblivion. Greta Thunberg, the woman of the moment, has called out platitudes and empty called out platitudes and empty gestures. Her uncompromising demand for action has rung out around the world and her demand that we make a change it will be heard by ordinary people with everything to lose. Following on from last week's show where Viv took us to the climate strike in Sydney, I will be chatting with Jane Morton, a very eloquent spokesperson from the Extinction Rebellion. I have also in the studio Cindy Macabory? Macabory. My, my, uh, my apologies there, from the Pacific Climate Warriors who spoke at the strike about Australia's role in the potential cultural extinction of Pacific Island nations. That's something we take very seriously here on our show. Between each of the interviews, I'll play some sound bites I got from the climate strike, ordinary people operating with great passion and conviction. But first, we will have on journalist and academic Dr. Mark Hudson, who has monitored the climate movement for years. He has been documenting widespread despair amongst the academics and scientific community who have had to bear the weight of knowledge and look on as we've accelerated towards the abyss. I think it's important to understand the role of despair, acknowledge the dark side and deal with it unflinchingly rather than banish it to the periphery. He has been studying inertia that has prevented action on climate change. He even got a vasectomy in 2004. We'll find out what he thinks of this moment right after this. This is a Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, and you are listening to 3CR. I'm here in the park just on the way to the climate strike with uh, Celia and Angela. Andrea, Andrea, sorry. Um, can you tell me why today is important for you? Because the world is in crisis, our planet is in crisis, but there's an additional thing. I think that the 17-year-olds, I'm not 17, um, are really, really showing the way because it's their future over a world that we've buggered up. Yep. Well, the politicians aren't listening. I believe in people power, and the more people out today to say, this is not acceptable, your stance. If you want our vote, you better change, you know, for the sake of the world. Now, as promised now, we'll have Dr. Mark Hudson on the line. Hello, Mark. Are you there? I am. Excellent. Now, All the way from Manchester, England. Thank you so much for getting up early in the morning. I could tell that sure, uh, sure. It, yeah, <laughs> it was quite early on your side. By The, um, cat, the, the cats were going to get us up anyway. They always <laughs> do. Where's, where's my food, says, say the cats. Um, I first came across you when I was reading your, one of your articles that you wrote on uh, the conversation. And you, I went to your bio and... You said, uh, for what it's worth, I think we're not going to get out of this mess to the extent that I had a vasectomy back in 2004. True story. Now, that had that really resonated with me. 
first of all, because 2004 was a long time ago. And can, yeah. can, can you please just explain your motivation for that? Sure. Um, so I grew up uh, mostly in Adelaide. And in 1988-89, the greenhouse effect, as we called it, uh, burst onto the scene. And I was 18, 19. Uh, and by 1991, it was, it was kind of obvious that the institutional inertia meant that we weren't going to get the kind of radical action that the scientists and activists were calling for. And I distinctly remember a letter in the Greenpeace magazine where someone sort of broached the possibility that we wouldn't make it. And it was a light bulb moment for me. And then um, in the mid-90s, I, I talked about getting a vasectomy, which was, would have been quite difficult um, because I, at that stage would have only been 25. And um, a girlfriend urged me not to because I might change my mind. Um, then by the early 2000s, after... Bush pulled out of Kyoto, and, and then John Howard infamously did the same. Um, it was kind of certain to me, as far as any, the future can be certain, that the human response to um, the, the problem that the scientists have been talking about for a lot longer than 1988, by the way, was going to be inadequate, if it, if it existed at all. Uh, and so I did the sums, and I thought, well, if I have a child now... Um, by the time it is 15 or 20, it is going to be clear to everyone, because you have to remember back in 2004, climate change was still uh, sort of a minority pursuit, a minority concern, yeah. uh, thanks in large part to the very effective campaigns of denial and seeding of doubt um, by our friends at Exxon and the Minerals Council of Australia and so forth. Um, I did the sums, and I thought that a child would turn to me and say, well, you knew, and yet you still had me. Thanks a lot, asshole. Am I allowed to swear? Anyway, um, and I didn't want to have that conversation. Um, uh, yeah. Does, does that explain? Yeah. I, I, I was having a debate with my co-presenter about it, who's Vivian Langford, who, who does most of the shows on here, and she suggested that it was an act on, of sacrifice on your part, but I... I thought it was more to do with how you saw the probable future um so so the, the formulation was always and uh, sorry by the way after i had that vasectomy and then in the, um we got some news coverage here in england about it and indeed internationally and the thing that we kept having to explain to uh, journalists was it wasn't that we were afraid of the impact our child would have. We weren't afraid of what our child would do to the planet. We were afraid of what the planet would do to our child. Right. Um, right. So, so it, it, it's kind of a sacrifice, but it's kind of more concern for unborn generations mm. and the troubles that they would face. Would you do the same thing today? Uh, well, for, fortunately, that's one of those operations you only have to have once. Um, are you asking me, would I... <laughs> yeah, would I, if, if you hadn't have had it and, then and you'd fast right, forward to now, um, would you yeah, still do no, it? No, but, but also I want to be extremely clear that I'm not um, telling other people that they should do this. This is obviously an intensely personal decision, you know. I'm not going to turn mm. around. Lots of my friends are, are having kids, and I, I find that kind of interesting, but I'm certainly not lecturing them about the use of 
condoms and IUDs. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I definitely, I, nothing, if you're asking has anything changed, it's like, no. Everything that's happened between 2004 and now, whether it's the, the Copenhagen debacle or whether it's mm-hmm. the complete fraud that is the Paris Agreement, uh, has confirmed me that uh, I was right, as far as I can tell. I read your article um, that you wrote on your site, which is about the motorcycle, which frames mm. political activism and the climate strait as a sort of an endless cycle, which performs much but achieves little. And I would like to sort of mm. critique that interpretation as oh, good. As, <laughs> part of the motorcycle that you explained is that people perform this huge event like the climate strike, want to convince themselves that it serves its purpose, then become exhausted with the huge effort and call it a day without really gaining anything concrete. Now, I was talking to a lady from Extinction Rebellion on the train heading in, and they talk about self-care and the idea of um, sustainable contribution so that people don't burn out and really go after it and then suddenly become exhausted and, and, and give up and mm. think that they've made a difference. Do you think that the motorcycle could be broken just by sustainably managing people's human energy? Yes, in theory. I would also add that when I was heavily involved in climate camp, which is basically uses much of the same mm-hmm. rhetoric and some of the same framing as Extinction Rebellion, we talked endlessly about um, burnout and self-care and mutual care. Mm-hmm. And the, the operative word in that sentence is talked about. I, ca- I cannot speak for 99.9% of Extinction Rebellion because I've only really seen with my own eyes one particular lot. But I think the um, rhetoric about regenerative culture is massively overplayed, and I see a lot of the same dynamics of the motorcycle and people I've spoken to in other cities and other countries report the same to me. So I think we'll know mm-hmm. in two or three years, but I think the the language of Extinction Rebellion that, you know, we have 12 years left to save the world and that the government has to act, um, I think that's a recipe. And again, I could be wrong, and I really hope I'm wrong, but I think in two or three years' time there might be a lot of people who were very, very active in 2019-20 and then after 18 months thought, well, what's the point? Scott Morrison isn't suddenly going to become Greta Thunberg and mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, who is probably going to be the next Prime Minister or the Prime Minister after the next election, isn't going to be sort of telling the truth and calling a citizens' assembly. And I, I think uh, after about 12, 18 months of staring into the abyss, remember, this is what we are doing here. Uh, if you're involved in a group called Extinction Rebellion, then you are thinking about human extinction all the time, and that is exhausting. So we'll see. We'll see. But I'm not... Just just because people are saying stuff, well, we said it 12, 15 years ago. Look where it got us. But I think we're in a different place than we were 12 to 15 years ago. So if you look you, back... I hope you're right. Even even looking back at the the situation in Australia now, I know you're in you're in Manchester, but you still yeah. But I was in look- I was in Australia for two months um, earlier this year after the election, and there were a lot of people walking around with thousand yard stairs, still shell shocked. I mean, yeah. maybe people are sort of picking up the pieces again now. Well, I was I was definitely one of those people, but 
um, if you look back at the situation in Australia, we be, even as late as 2017, there was a very strong climate denialist um, faction, I guess, uh, at, at play. Then, and then sort of 2018, the idea of denying climate change became publicly, uh, it lost all its credibility. But don't you think um, that activism is moving, that that is progress? Well, well, who won the election, mate? Yeah. Yeah, but wasn't it was definitely on a platform of dealing with... Look, the... I mean, Richard Dennis wrote a very good piece in uh, The Monthly about the election and mm-hmm. um, why so many people got it wrong, including himself. He was honest about that. And, yeah, you know, you could argue that it comes down to 22 seats in Queensland and 11 seats in Western Australia. But I think just because lots of people, including lots of young people who are too young to vote, a lot of them sadly, um, understand, doesn't mean that denialism doesn't work. I mean, look at the people around Scott Morrison um, and look at the fact that, you know, that coal mine is going to get built and it's the first of of many. Now, whether it's ever going to be economically viable or not, who knows, but, you know, my money would be on Adani getting built and that's the first of six in in the Galilee Basin. Yeah. So... Uh, just, yeah, I, I think denial has worked, as you've said, and I think it's in the, among the old white men who run things, it's still an attractive proposition. Yeah, I guess they don't have Effective to deal as well. with the consequences. Um, now, no, but, I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, sure, sure. But if you tap in... But I, I think you... Sorry, go on. Sorry, moving on from sort of the systemic take on yeah. things, if you, you, for example, for your thesis, you analysed the carbon tax in great detail, which was a high watermark of public concern about climate change. And mm. you talk about inertia, but I'd prefer to talk about momentum and that the momentum then was squandered by, you know, bungling by Rudd and a concerted effort by the fossil fuel lobby, which took a ton of work and money on their part to prevent climate action. Now, if you look at any of the polls now, we are operating at a level of generalised public fear and anxiety and the Mm -hmm. demand for action on climate change, and plus this time it's global. What do you think would be the right thing to do with this momentum? Okay, so can I just say that my thesis was about carbon pricing in yeah. general and right. the carbon tax efforts in 88, 89, oh, okay. 94, 95, and, and also um, Rudd and Gillard. I mean, this has been going on for a very long time, and one of the findings of my thesis was that the battle lines, uh, to use a word that, you know, there's a book, isn't there, battle lines, mm. anyway, were set in the early days. Um, in terms of what you do about momentum on the side of the activists was clearly try to maintain and um, spread that momentum. But I don't believe that you do that by having a big event and then three months later, another big event and another three months later, another big event, because I mean, as you've read in the motorcycle, what that does is it means that people who would otherwise be doing the granular work of movement building, of making sure that there are no skills and knowledge bottlenecks in a group, mm. that new people are welcomed in, that new people can can do activism without risking arrest or having to spend a day marching around um, 
uh, Swanston Street or uh, Sydney Harbour when, you know, they're old, they're maybe a little bit sick, they've got a zero-hours contract, they've got um, kids they have to look after, or parents they have to look after. But instead, those people can spend an hour a week submitting a Freedom of Information Act request or blogging or um, holding a coffee morning with neighbours and helping those neighbours get their heads around the basics of climate science and climate policy. All of that kind of work is very unadrenaline, untestosterone. Mm. And at the moment, it is not valorized and it's not supported. Um, there's a term I use, it's a horrible term, but it, it sums up what we need, which is legitimate peripheral participation. At the moment, if you want to gain activist tokens and be an accepted and um, liked member of activist subculture, you really have to perform your activism in public, uh, get arrested, have a funny placard, be able to be articulate on the radio or whatever. I think that rewards a small subset of people who have what is called biographical availability, which in the short version means they're either young and they don't have kids or they're retired. Um, anyone with kids, with sick parents, with a career, with jobs, with a zero-hour contract is not really welcome. You can't find a way in to these groups and, and stay involved in these groups year in, year out. We do not need... 12 months, 16 months, 20 months of passion, we need cold, um, I don't even want to say anger, I want to say determination, that we are not going to let our lords and masters in the political and economic classes continue to fob us off with fake solutions like carbon pricing, because, by the way, even if Gillard's carbon pricing had gotten through and survived, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. And we've, we've got to do this, and we haven't in the past. You know, there have been repeated waves of passion like this. Um, I'm old enough to remember three of them, and there was one just as I was born in the late 60s, early 70s. People were running around saying, we'll all be dead in 10 years, the pollution will kill us. And it lasts about 18 months, maybe three years. That's how long it lasts. History is, That's what history has said anyway. might be different this time. I don't want to gamble that it will. Right. So one thing in terms of that cold determination that you were talking about. Um, so I was talking to Jane. We'll hear from Jane Morton from Extinction Rebellion mm -hmm. soon in a pre-recorded interview. But one thing she said that really stuck with me, which perhaps we can connect to what you were saying, which is we don't need hope. What we need now is courage and that hope in the face. Uh, she got that from Kate Marvel. Yeah, yeah. She's a NASA sorry. scientist called Kate Marvel. Brilliant article. Brilliant article. Everyone should read it. Um, the said should we'll put it we'll put it in yeah we'll put it in the notes but i just think that yeah hope is kind of maybe this is what you're talking about that hope is in the face of overwhelming facts that we're in a ton of trouble seems to be kind of denial whereas courage is much more powerful and and really you know staring the facts straight on do, do you think that's even then that's still starry-eyed optimism no no i i, I... Well, and, um, and the term optimism can be sort of, you can distinguish that slightly from hope, but let's not get into word games here. Look, I think courage is also contagious and collective and can only be maintained if lots of people are supporting each other. Um, the, we, we think 
of ourselves as atomized, isolated individuals. We're often encouraged to do that, but we are fundamentally social beings, whether we like it or not. And you know, the sort of the right wingers, the libertarians, do not. And courage has to is, is think of courage as um, like any other sort of quote resource unquote. It is renewable, but it has to be husbanded. It has to be. Um, mm nurtured it has to be supported um and and people will have more or less of it at various times in their life so what i i think we need to do is um work on our courage absolutely awesome awesome thank you so much for your time mark um especially sure, no so, so early in the morning um so li- listeners can hear more from uh read more from you on at your website which is markhudson.net mark with a c yeah, and we also have, I'm involved in a couple of other projects, but the one that might be interesting to people is called climateemergencymanchester.net. And I'm part of a collective, there's five of us at the minute, including a man with two young kids who writes um, very sensitively, intelligently and eloquently mm. about the challenges that being a father or being a parent have when when you are working on likely or at least possible near-term extinction i'd strongly recommend the things that he's written uh, about being a parent with kids so climate emergency manchester.net his name is callum callum um and if people want to they can email me um on uh what's the best one uh mark my words at gmail.com which is mark with a c and if they can't find the articles i will um i'll point them onwards and if they if they really disagree with something i've said i'd I'd love to hear from people why i mean no you know no just sort of you're an idiot piss off but (laughs) if if people have got a reasoned argument then it'd be great to hear from them good on you mark thanks so much again and and best of luck great thank you you too all the best bye-bye that was um mark hudson dr mark hudson and uh now we'll have um Susan Rennie, who I spoke to on the way to um, to the climate strike. I'm here with Susan Rennie, who is the mayor of Darabin. Hello, Susan. Hello. Hey, why uh, why why are you coming to the to the climate strike today? Look, I think there's no more important place to be because our earth is threatened by climate change and our governments are failing us, and so it's really important that we come along. I've got three kids here with me today, and um, they were keen to have their say because it's the planet they're going to have to live on. Um, so what, what is your message to politicians that would be listening to this that, that want a single message from the, from the strike? It's time to act now and act decisively, stop mucking around, get on with it. We need not only to reduce our emissions to zero, we need to start drawing down dangerous gases that are in the atmosphere, otherwise the planet is um, on a collision course with, for extinction. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks. Um, so I am joined now by uh, Cindy, who is a Pacific climate warrior. Her mother is from West Papua, and I heard her speak at Melbourne's climate strike on the 20th of September. I found her speech very, very powerful. Cindy told us we are not drowning, we are fighting. As you know, here at Beyond Zero Emissions, we take the plight of our Pacific Island neighbours very seriously, and it's about time the rest of Australia did too. After all, it's our industry that's threatening them. Cindy, welcome to the show. 
Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, so um, I recently joined the Pacific Climate Warriors Melbourne crew in September. And um, well, the Pacific Climate Warriors are just a grassroots of youth network made up of 15 Pacific Island nations, plus Mm -hmm. three Pacific um, diaspora communities in the United States, New Zealand and Australia. Right. Um, and I'm very honoured to have been given the opportunity, the role actually, to be the spokesperson at the rally, at the Climate Strike Rally. Um, and yeah, the main message of the Pacific Climate Warriors this year, the theme was Matangi Malohi. Um, so it is the Pacific uh, PCW theme for September in Tokaloan meaning strong wind. So inspired by the fact that Tokelau is the first country in the world to be 100% um, reliant on renewable energy. Mm. And every campaign, we try to use uh, language from across the Pacific to influence our work. So it will be the strong winds that will carry our message. It will be the strong winds that will carry our banners high. And it will be the winds that will navigate our canoe in this movement. That's really great. Um, this year we took our show to Kiribati and we found that uh, many people would sit around on a, on a Sunday and sing and I, I managed to get record a few of those songs and we played them on the radio and oh, it was nice. like super great reaction. Yeah. Uh, what uh, uh, You talked about being able to use language from across the Pacific yeah. and what other sort of weapons like song or, or that sort of thing do climate warriors have at their disposable to sort of combat the apathy or despair on climate yeah. change? Yeah, so absolutely. Singing is a big part of all the Pacific cultures. Um, so is dancing and laughing with the family and the communities. Um, so these are also tools on, uh, you know, for staying positive and hopeful, I guess, in this situation. Mm. Um, and being a Pacific Islander, we are very grounded in our roots. Um, it is So it is very important that we storytell. So storytelling is our weapon, um, you know, towards climate justice in this case. And telling stories of survival, you know, our resilience, um, you know, to, in colonization and all those other sort of things is very important. Mm-hmm. And it is what fuels, you know, our fight, I guess. So Awesome. Awesome. And, and what's what's the response been to your work um, within Australia, particularly last year when you confronted the fossil fuel industry? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so it's pretty obvious that um, Australia is just amazing at being one of the worst countries yeah. um, in the world for this movement. So Australia is part of the Pacific. Um, and despite the disrespect from this government to our people and our leaders, we know it is not a reflection of its people. Um, so, you know, that they're fighting alongside us for a clear, cleaner future. Um, so yeah, I mean, our work in communities and working alongside other organizations in the movement is growing and that's a good sign, but there is so much work also to get done. Mm. Um, and it's going to require everyone. So, you know, we need everyone to get involved in this movement. Right. And now your personal history, which you recounted to the whole climate strike in a really compelling way. Um, Your mother arrived in Australia as a refugee from West Papua, where she was politically persecuted by the Mm. Indonesian government. 
Has her story as a political refugee informed your story fighting for climate refugees? Yeah, so um, my mother and I, along with my brother, we arrived in Australia in 2006. Mm -hmm. And we have not been back to West Papua since then because of mum's human rights work for West Papua. Um, and the thing is that in West Papua, we are not only facing colonisation, but we're also um, facing the impacts of climate change. Um, and, you know, losing our land to companies, clearing the land for mining and logging and plantations, um, which resulted in the displacements of the Indigenous people and, um, you know, the local Indigenous people. And... Uh, and also it um, affects their Indigenous lives as well. So the one thing that connects all the Pacific islands is the ocean. And it is getting warmer because of the overload CO2 in the atmosphere. But And in recent years, our coastlines have eroded. Locals living in the lowland low um, mm. are affected by floods and extreme heat and cold and um, have you know also decreased the food production. So just like our Pacific Islands family from the low-lying atolls of Kiribati to Tuvalu um, and the big islands of Vanuatu and Fiji, um, climate change is becoming a threat to our homes and our way of living. So, you know, yeah. 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 I, like I said before, we did a show on, on Kiribati, yeah. uh, which was all been told like the first, it's going to be the first nation that will succumb to climate change. And yeah. I've, when I was there, I found the people really welcoming and warm and mostly relaxed. But when you talked about climate change, some of them got very fiery, yeah. <laughs> which is totally understandable. Yes. When I spoke to the head of Kiribati Climate Action Network, who is Pelanese uh, Alofa, yeah. we talked about how Kiribati's culture cannot just be pulled up and moved. It can't just be relocated. It relies on a sense of place. Um, is the threat to climate change within the Pacific a threat unique uh, to unique cultures rather than just the survival of a people? Yeah, so um, Mama Pele, well, that's how we <laughs> yeah. know her by. Um, I've actually haven't met her personally, but I've heard great stories mm. um, about her, and she's a legend. She's awesome. Um, so, mm. but I think that climate change is a is a direct threat to our unique cultures because. Across the Pacific, culture is one of the many things that are the key to our identity. Mm. Um, and as young Pacifica, our culture helps us to stay grounded in our roots and it helps us to navigate the different parts of ourselves, whether it will be individually or together in a, in a community. Um, so our unique culture is, you know, it helps us to be able to navigate together with other young Pacificas and also First Nations mm. um, across the region and the world. So it allows us to establish a common ground um, as people with a sense of place and purpose. And uh, hence why I believe it is important to preserve a unique culture. Mm. Um, it is a fundamental piece that shapes who we are and why we do what we do mm. and how to be resilient against the threats to our island homes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, I understand that the Pacific Climate Warriors are going to be involved in a flotilla in Newcastle soon, and can you explain what that's going to involve? <laughs> to be brutally honest, um, I'm very new to the Pacific <laughs> Climate Warriors, so I don't really know much about this flotilla, but if it is anything like the 
Pacific Climate Warriors in 2014, I'm sure it'll be amazing because I've heard mm. a lot of good stuff about it. So yeah, sorry I couldn't like no, delve it sounds, more into that. Well, I'm actually gonna for the next show. I'm gonna be going to Newcastle, so hopefully oh, cool. I'll, I'll be able to explain. Yeah, yes, please <laughs> let me know. <laughs> um, so where can people find out more information about um, Pacific Climate Warriors? Yeah, so we're on Facebook and Instagram. There are our most updated platforms for information. Um, so the FB pages are the 350 Pacific and 350 Pacific Australia. Yep. Um, and Instagram is the Pacific Climate Warriors. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for coming into the No, into the thank you for having me. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll definitely check back in with you um, next year and see how you're not drowning but fighting. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks. My message is that we'll be watching you. <laughs> This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe. That is, of course, Greta Thunberg, who is the lady of the moment in a very, very moving speech um, that she's been, that, uh, yeah, she recounted there. Um, so uh, next up we've got uh, Jane, Jane Morton, who... Um, I interviewed while on the train. Um, apologies, it's it's uh, a little bit noisy, but I think it'll be quite good for uh, for for atmosphere and being really able to understand the the, the communal feeling that I got um, going towards the the climate strike. So this is this is Jane. It's gonna be hard. No, no, that's, that's good. That's good. Uh, this thing works okay. So I, I'm joined here by uh, Jane Morton, who's a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. Hello, Jane. How are you? Hi, I'm really good. Isn't this fantastic? It is. It really is. Uh, this is totally full. Yeah. <laughs> totally packed. We hardly could fit in. Yeah. <laughs> is there enough room? My screw squeeze one or two more in. That's about it, though. Um, can you say why, uh, why, why today's important? Well, 
For many years I've been now working on the climate emergency and just trying to get some action and since 2016 I've been working on a campaign to declare a climate emergency, getting councils to declare and all that. But I think that, that Greta, with her capacity to explain the emergency in a way that people can understand, which is, like, especially her, like her phrase, I want you to panic, I want you to act like it's a crisis, I want you to act like the house is on fire, because it is. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just brilliant. And I think it's, it's unbelievable that in one year she's gone from being one person in front of the Swedish parliament to, like, uh, I don't know, it's going to be millions this time, I would say. Yeah. So my view is that the, the students strike and the adults should rebel. Yeah. So I think that we, you know, it's time for civil disobedience. We're totally out of time. Um, I think the last election demonstrated to anyone who wasn't quite sure that our politics really is broken. Our whole system is broken. The growth economy, the political system, everything about it is just not working. Um, and in that situation, you know, you can do your petitions and you can lobby people, but in the end, you actually have to go and disrupt. Yeah. And so that's what we're doing with Extinction Rebellion. Um, and, and why is it so significant that children are involved in this? Well, I think it's the moral force. I heard a story that um, Josh Frydenberg was at a big um, election forum and he's, you know, discussing it all with people and saying, oh, the Liberals are doing a great job. And, and then Greta came on the screen and he just could not look even at the screen. And he wouldn't be able to look at any of these kids that are on the, in the carriage, I don't think either, because I think in their hearts, the people who are destroying our future and destroying our kids' future, they know in their hearts what they're doing. And I think it's the moral force of kids standing up and saying, what are you doing to us? Yeah. that is swinging things. Now, I've noticed with uh, Extinction Rebellion that it's definitely a, a, a ramping up and an acceleration of, of the response to inaction on climate change. Why is it necessary to ramp that up? Why is it necessary to, to escalate that? Well, I mean, we've known for a decade, well, more than a decade now, Around 2007, people started saying it was an emergency and only a World War II scale mobilisation, you know, to completely transform everything was going to save us. Then we were told that the critical decade was 2010 to 2020, and as Beyond Zero Emissions, you know, well knew and, and did a report based on this, that was the 10 years we were meant to get to zero. Well, we only got one year left, and I think we've got a way to go. So I think when you look around now, you can see there's terrible damage been done already. You know, we're at 1.1 degree of warming. And we've got no choice but to actually go as fast, as fast as we possibly, possibly can. And I mean, I think the thing that activists were, were puzzled about is the problem with the climate emergency is it's sort of, it's sort of everywhere and nowhere. Like if you want to stop Adani, you go to the gates of Adani or the companies that are involved. But when you want to stop the climate emergency, well, where do you go? Um, and it wasn't until Roger Hellen, the Extinction Rebellion UK, came up with the, the idea that basically you go to the centre of the capital or a large city and you shut it down. That's how you bring them to negotiate. And it's worked like a charm. They did 11 days in the UK and the government did negotiate and they did get the declaration of a climate emergency. Not that they've got all the action that goes with it, but the first step in Extinction Rebellion is tell the truth. So you get the government to tell the truth that it really is an emergency and to declare a climate and ecological emergency, there's more people cramming in, they're going to be like sardines. Um, yeah, so that's the first step, to declare an emergency. But the, the second and third steps are to actually get, um, to act as though the truth is real. So to get to zero emissions at absolutely emergency speed now. 
um, there's no choice. Every, every year we wait to get to zero. We're just doing more and more and more damage. And the other thing that's happened is that scientists have come out and said that even if we stay at less than two degrees of warming, we could still pass tipping points for a cascade of feedbacks that could push us into unstoppable, um, an unstoppable descent into hothouse earth. So that's another thing that's become, well, it was pretty clear before, but it's become much more clear and much more explicit just in the last year or two with um, work by Will Steffen and others on, yep. the, on the tipping points and, and with Schellenhuber coming out and making his statement that at um, four degrees, which is where we're heading under our Paris commitments, emissions targets, um, four degrees, only a billion survive. Yeah. And this is controversial. We've actually got David Spratt um, being banned from Facebook as, as fake news and we've got um, Roger Hallam, one of his posts being banned from Facebook as face, fake news for saying this one billion figure. But it's Hans Schellenhuber who said it first. So it's quite extraordinary. So this is to do with the truth. Like it's the fact that it that we're risking human extinction. Um, also, David Wallace Wells, he got um, really pummeled as well for saying that we're heading towards an uninhabitable earth. Um, but I think the genius of Extinction Rebellion is that it's called Extinction Rebellion. It's got the problem in one half and the, and the solution in the other. And to just come out boldly with a really strong message, I think it's already transforming things. Yeah. Do you think in Australia that we have a special moral responsibility to undo the damage that we've done? Look, I think without a doubt, you know, we're one of the highest per capita emitters in the whole world and we're heading towards being the biggest exporters of coal and gas in the world. So, you know, there's, there's no doubt that we have an absolutely massive responsibility. We're also amongst the richest in the world. So it's quite shameful. But I think one of the exciting things about Extinction Rebellion and how they think about things is the analysis that says it's a toxic system. And under that analysis, even um, Palmer or Adani, they're actually caught up in a complete, in a toxic system that is making, well, that means that everyone is behaving badly. Yeah. Uh, so we have to turn around. It's not a matter of individuals changing so much as uh, as getting massive action at the government level. Yeah. Overseen by a people's assembly, a citizens assembly. This is one of the things about Extinction Rebellion that at first I just thought was pretty weird. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting, citizens assemblies have been used around the world to decide really contentious issues yeah. and they're just like jury duty, they're selected um, randomly and when you think about it, ordinary people have a lot more common sense on this than politicians. Ordinary people, if you say to them, we're heading for human extinction, we're heading for an uninhabitable planet, we're killing all the fish in the Murray-Darling, we're, we're having our um, farmers subject to massive drought, all the things that we're doing, the ice is melting. Um, ordinary people would just say, well, we better do something about that. But government, because of the system, is paralysed. It's paralysed by don donors, it's paralysed by... Um, uh, worrying about winning their next election in marginal seats and it's paralysed by the Murdoch press, it's paralysed by people like Clive Palmer kicking in 66 million to make sure that you don't get in, don't trust Bill, don't trust Bill, don't trust Bill, don't trust Bill. It's, it's broken. So, yeah, but if, in Extinction Rebellion we try and create the future by relating to each other differently in the within the movement and I just think that this tactic of shutting down the city, well, we've already seen it can work. Yeah. And I think that the, the, 
the fact that it really inspires people shows by the fact that it on. That Extinction Rebellion also has spread into, I think, hundreds of countries now. Yeah. There's thousands of groups in hundreds of countries, and really, it's only a year old. It's the same as Greta, like the spread of, of, of um, the school strikes and the spread of Extinction Rebellion are both showing this absolutely exponential growth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you need that, or do you want to? Oh, sorry. Sorry yeah. about that. Okay. Yeah, so there's, I think it's an idea whose time has come, and the quite amazing thing that we find is that um, whereas before it was always a matter of almost chasing people down the street trying to get them yeah. to sign up to something, or yeah. now at Extinction Rebellion, people are flooding towards yeah. us. We're hard pressed just to keep on phoning them up and integrating them and fitting them into some part yeah. of the movement. Yeah. It's, it's, and I'm sure, that, I'm sure the school strikers are finding the same. Yeah. That suddenly, even like businesses are supporting, even the banks are supporting. Yeah. Uh, people are speaking out all over. It's just quite amazing. So, yeah, I, I noticed that when I looking through Extinction Rebellion's website, that you you guys walk a really interesting line between honesty about the situation, but still having a level of positivity within the organization to stop people burning out or to stop people becoming depressed or losing themselves to despair it does uh, how, how do you do that well we do like walk a fine line and and uh, one of my responsibilities within the rebellion is doing the introductory talks and the actual way we do that every single time is basically to take a people down on a descent not exactly into despair but into fear and distress for the first half of the talk just yeah. by talking about you know how bad everything is and the, and the risks that we face yeah but then take them up but we take them up in the second half based on the hope that our method will work and on the idea that um that even if it doesn't in a sense the the thought that we've done everything we can it's it's really geeing people up with um values-based commitment to do everything that you can and there's a, a sort of a view in zen that um you do everything you can and then you let go of the results right. because if you do everything you can and then you win great you know celebrate if you do everything you can and it still turns you know yeah, out yeah. really badly you at least lie easy in the bed you're not going oh if only i had this if only i had that you just go look i did everything i could so that's the idea and i think there is um kate marvel the scientist she says at this point in history we actually need courage more than we need hope she said, I don't have a great deal of hope, but what we need is courage. And so I think Extinction Rebellion, we're really calling on people to mobilise their courage. We're not really promising them that everything's going to work out. But there's something about working with these people. It's just so rewarding. The people that are in Extinction Rebellion, like I'm old, <laughs> getting old, uh, most of them are really young. And they're, they're quitting their careers in engineering, in law, in doctoring in, um, in permaculture because they realise their future's on the line and they're prepared to give up everything to work on it full time and to be surrounded by this energy is just unbelievable. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Um, so I guess uh, one final thing which is like if you, what, what do you want to achieve out of today? Well, it's quite nice today, I feel like I'm off duty. I'm not trying to achieve anything in particular. I think the school strikers and their allies in the union movement have done an incredible job of mobilising and making this as big as it can possibly be. Yep. It's very exciting for me that, um, say in the age advertisement today, they're talking about extinction. Because in Europe, the school strikers and the Extinction Rebellion have always worked side by side. Like Greta came down and launched the Extinction Rebellion when it began in the UK. So 
out of it, I suppose I mainly hope that a really strong message will emerge as the main message. And of course, it'll just be absolutely huge across the whole world. Yeah. And that everyone will come and join us on, in the, the Spring Rebellion that starts 7th of October yeah. in most of the major cities, right. and certainly in Melbourne, starting at um, Carlton Gardens yeah. on the Monday. Ideally, we're hoping people will take the whole week off. Um, and we're not at the level that um, Extinction Rebellion in London was at when they actually shut down five locations, just held them night and day for 11 days. I think we're more like at the stage where they held five bridges for a half a day. But we will be causing as much disruption as we can manage and we'll be sacrificing ourselves, in a sense, by offering ourselves for arrest in order to cause that disruption. So I just really hope that it sort of builds seamlessly from the school kids through all the stuff that Greta's doing at the UN, through the um, Extinction Rebellion Spring yeah. Uprising starting October the 7th. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jane. And best of luck. Thank you. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. That was Jane Morton and that was me talking to her on the way to the climate strike. Um, I think it was quite, uh, quite striking how um, she mentioned that Kate Marvel article which is about um using courage not not hope and uh also how much she was talking about um that grass action grassroots action that uh mark hudson was discussing as the, as the real work that's involved in raising awareness and turning the tide on uh, on climate change um before we, when we were talking with cindy um i was talked about uh, some songs that i recorded in kiribati and i i think how powerful music is for that as uh, for the Pacific climate warriors. I think it'll be really nice if we could listen to one now. So I'll play one now and um, I hope we can enjoy this. <laughs> Oh, yeah, see, I need 
That is Ataya and his family, which I recorded when I was in Kiribati. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for for today. If you're feeling free, or if you're free and feeling energized by this week's show and want to be involved, then you can head down to Extinction Rebellion's Spring Rebellion, where Extinction Rebellion groups from Melbourne and other parts of Victoria will peacefully occupy an area within the southwest corner of Carlton Gardens and aim to stay there for at least seven days and nights with civil disobedience actions planned all over the city. Their opening ceremony will be happening about right now, and you can get there if you leave straight away after the show. Otherwise, anytime during the the week, you can head down and appreciate some of the some of the. Uh, they'll appreciate the support. Um, it'll be positive and upbeat, and it's honestly it's worth it just to look at some of the signs. Um, there were some great ones uh, at the climate strike, like um, I'm looking at one right now, and there's "Are you smarter than a fifth grader?" with Scott Morrison's face in the middle of it, and then another. Uh, one boy has made a um, "Go Solar" sign, which is illuminated by the uh, solar panel, which is on his uh, on his chest like a sandwich board. So that's a uh, um, yeah, that's a, a, a very inventive way of showing the possibilities of solar power. And then there's a "Hey Scummo, the world is not your Engadine Maccas." Now, um, if you don't understand that one, I probably can't tell you over radio. So please look that up. Next up, we have Communication Mixdown. Thank you so much for Viv, Annie, and our guests, Jane Morton from Extinction Rebellion, Cindy Macabury, the Pacific Climate Warrior, and Dr. Mark Hudson. This is 3CR, and this has been Beyond Zero Emissions Radio. I am Kurt Johnson. <laughs>